If you're in Mark 9, say amen. amen. I need to borrow your imagination if I can. I want you to imagine you've been drafted into the United States military. World War III has broke out and your country needs you. You didn't have to have a say in the matter. You got the letter in the mail because you're in good enough shape and you're fit for the other requirements, you got chosen. Now, I know some of you are thinking right now, there's no way they choose me. I asked you to use your imagination, okay? You're 150 pounds again. You can run five miles without stopping and you can eat pizza late at night without getting heartburn, okay? That's what I want you to imagine. In the letter they sent you, there was an optional training that you could attend for four weeks that would prepare you for warfare. Physical training, gun training, survival training. Now, if you got that letter in the mail, then you got the opportunity for, for optional training. It wasn't mandatory. It was just highly encouraged. Would you choose to go to that four-week training before you went off to war? I would. A couple of reasons. Number one, I'm a terrible shot. I can't even load my gun properly. I've told people, if you're going to rob me, I need you to give me a two-hour head start so I can get my clip loaded. And I'm going to shoot a lot more things than just the person I'm trying to shoot at. So I would need at least four weeks. Number two, I don't even know how to set up a tent for a camping trip, let alone survive in a foxhole. I'm going to need some help, right? This is real war. I would definitely gather as much information I could to survive. Today I'm going to offer you some training for warfare. Obviously, World War III has not broke out, so it has nothing to do with the war in that sense. But every one of you in here, myself included, is in a battle. We call it spiritual warfare. The enemy in charge, his name is the devil. The armies we're fighting consist of principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high places. These are not figments of our imagination. The devil isn't a Halloween character that wears a, a red robe, holds a pitchfork, and has pointed ears. We are facing a very, very real enemy, and we are in the, in the midst of a very real battle. And you can't opt out of this war. Everyone is drafted into it. You either fight or you fail. The text before us is going to teach us how we can avoid failure in spiritual warfare. It's going to teach us how we can survive in spiritual warfare. I want to read the text at large and then go to studying it. Because I want, to, I want you to get the full picture of this story. But you need to follow along either on the screen or in your copy of God's Word. Verses 14 through 29. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them. And the scribes questioning with them. Straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered, said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him. And he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy, to thy disciples that they should cast him out. And they could not. He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. They brought him unto him. When he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. 
And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out, said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit. Saying unto him, thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead in so much that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And he was coming to the house. His disciples asked him privately, why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Avoiding failure in spiritual warfare. Obviously the disciples were facing a challenging situation that involved a father and a demon-possessed son. The son had been possessed with what our text calls a dumb spirit. Others call it an unclean spirit. Probably since he was a baby, according to the father. He had been struggling with this his entire life. Now, the disciples had seen spiritual warfare up to this point. They had encountered demon possession before, but there was something uniquely challenging about this little boy who was demon possessed. Because the demon was causing this boy to have seizures. It was tearing him. That's what it means. It would cause him to foam at the mouth. He would gnash his teeth. He would become stiff as a board. And the boy has known nothing but this miserable existence his entire life. And can you imagine for a moment the father of this boy? Mercy, the father admitted that on several occasions he had to keep the boy from throwing himself in a fire, killing himself, drowning himself in the sea. That's how much havoc the devil was wreaking in this boy's life. You got to know the father was exhausted. You got to know the father was burdened. You got to know the father was stressed. Have you ever tried to care for a mentally ill person? Have you ever tried to care for a mentally disabled person? I'm glad people do care for those kind of folks. But it's exhausting. It's burdensome. It consumes your entire life. This was a uniquely challenging case of spiritual warfare. Now you may be tempted to think when you hear something like that, that we are removed very far from this kind of demon possession or oppression today because we don't see children acting like this. We don't go to Walmart and see adults behaving well. Depends if they got what they wanted. But we shouldn't be mistaken. The devil is just as alive and active today as he was in this little boy's life. He's after us on a daily basis with one objective, to steal and to kill and destroy our lives. If you're honest with yourself, you can find yourself in this text. You don't have to be foaming at the mouth to find yourself in this text. You don't have to be seizing on the ground, stiff as a board, throwing yourself in a fire to find yourself in this text. All you got to do is be living, breathing, and a child of God. Because the devil is after you. He's trying to wreak havoc in your life. And the truth is, some are here, some are here today, right now, and the devil's wreaking havoc in your life. You know that. He's having a heyday with you right now. 
For some of you, it's the fact that the spiritual warfare is over your very soul. Some of you, under the sound of my voice, I'm convinced the crowd this size, the devil is after your soul because you're not saved yet. You're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ yet. And so the devil is doing everything he can to distract you from hearing the words of life today. The devil has done everything he can up to this point to convince you that your religion is good enough to save you. And your baptism is good enough to save you. And if you act good enough and you have more good deeds than bad, that's good enough to save you. Your communion's good enough to save you. Your confirmation's good enough to save you. Your confession is good enough to save you. The devil has convinced you of that up to this point. Some of you, the devil has convinced you that you're too far to get saved, too far removed from God's grace. You've done too much for far too long for God to forgive you. And the devil has convinced you that God can never redeem your regrets. He's convinced you that you are beyond salvageable. There is war for your soul this very day. If you're saved, the devil might have lost your soul, but he doesn't want to lose influence in your life. He might have lost you for eternity, but he wants to make your, earth, your, 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 your life on earth very, very miserable. And so he's going to try everything he can to wreak havoc in every area of your life. And he's going, to, he's going to take this angle, then he's going to take that angle. He doesn't just know your weak spots, he knows your weak times. And he's going to be attacking you. And some of you came into the auditorium today and you was attacked on your way in. You was attacked when you rolled up to the parking lot. You're fighting with your spouse. Uh-oh. You had the minivan transformation. Step out of the minivan in the parking lot of the church and everything's good all of a sudden. Liar, liar. In all seriousness, the devil is trying to wreak havoc in some marriages today. He's trying to separate what God never wanted to separate. He, he's trying to cause problems where God never wanted there to be problems. The devil's trying to take the joy out of your marriage. He's trying to take the life out of your marriage. He's trying to take the contentment out of your marriage. He's trying to mess up the communication in your marriage. He's trying to make you discontent in your marriage. The devil is after your marriage because if he can get your marriage, he can get your kids. And he can get their kids. And their kids. And, and one broken marriage can lead to another broken marriage. And the devil knows the covenant of marriage is very special to God. So that's what he attacks most often. For some, it's your kids' lives. You know he's wreaking havoc in your kids' lives and it burdens you today. You couldn't get them to come to church with you. They're making really, really selfish, impulsive decisions. Causes you to scratch your head and say, I didn't raise them that way. Spending their money this way. Hanging out with this group of people. Addicted to this drug. And you're thinking, Lord, what has happened to my kids? It's the devil. For some of you, the devil's wreaking a havoc in your life through a bad habit or a sinful addiction that you're trying to break and it's like your demon. You just can't break free from it, you don't think. For some of you, it's your emotions. The devil's wreaking havoc in your emotions. He's caused you to be angry. He's caused you to be bitter. He's caused you to be insecure. He's caused you to be depressed. He's caused you to be discouraged. He's caused you to lose hope. Now you walk around just, just, a, you walk around just an angry person. Wallowing in self-pity. That doesn't come from God. Devil's wreaking havoc in maybe your attitude or your overall perspective of life. Let's be honest. Sometimes the devil just can sour us. And we see everything through the lens of negativity. Nothing or nobody's ever good enough. 
We never want to admit a blessing because we just want to focus on a burden. Come to church and you're grumpy. You go home and you're grumpy. You go to work and you're grumpy. In all three of those places, nobody's ever quite good enough. The devil, according to the book of Job, can wreak havoc in your health. If God lets him, he can touch your body. He can cause you to get sick. And with that sickness comes a lot of discouragement. For some, it's, 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 your, it's your mental state. The devil can cause you from going mentally healthy to mentally ill. If the devil can win the, the war in your mind, he, he, can, he can gain territory in your life at that point. Sometimes the devil works through our finances. He gives us a sense of discontentment and we start spending impulsively. He, he, he gives us a spirit of materialism where we just can't have enough and we got to keep up with the Joneses. And so we, we swipe our credit card here and swipe our credit card there. And then the devil has his, his way in our life because then it, it causes problems in our marriage and it, it causes problems in our sleeping patterns because we're stressed out at night. How we're going to pay this bill and that bill. Are you getting the idea? You don't have to foam at the mouth. You don't have to throw yourself into a fire for the devil to wreak havoc in your life. Some of you, when I mentioned those very things, a light bulb turned on and said, oh yeah, I am in spiritual warfare right now. What do you do if that's the case? Well, the common sense answer is this, you get help. You don't just let the devil have a heyday in your life. You go to somebody that can help you. That's what the father did. You know who he went to? The disciples. He went to these group of 12 men that apparently had a reputation for being able to cast out unclean spirits. Father said, hey, can you help my boy? And the disciples gave it a shot. And guess what? They failed. They couldn't get the job done. Look at the last part of verse 18. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out. And they could not. Could you imagine how the disciples must have felt? Probably defeated. Maybe frustrated, for sure, embarrassed. I mean, after all, they're the apostles, the sent ones, the commissioned ones, the empowered ones. They have a reputation for getting the job done, but now they fell. Have you ever failed in your battle against the devil? You ever come short in your battle against Satan and his demons in your life? Have you ever gotten to the end of a day and you just wanted to chalk it up as a gigantic spiritual failure because all day long the flesh and the devil wreaked havoc in your life and you said, okay, he wins. Have you ever failed? It's, it's discouraging. It's very discouraging. As a spouse, you're short, you're irritable, uncaring, insensitive, impatient, isolated, straight up selfish. If you're a child of God and your heart isn't hardened towards your spouse, there's no way you can go to bed after failing as a spouse in that way and feel okay with it. As a parent, you lost your temper with your child again. And you know yelling's not the answer. Maybe you went the other direction and you were just passive. You gave up, you gave in, let them have their way because that's just easier for you. But in your heart, you know that's not the solution either. And you go to bed as a parent thinking sometimes I can't get it right. As an employer, you said something in frustration to one of your team members that ruined your credibility with them or your testimony with them. Hey, it's something that probably needed to be said, but not how you said it or where you said it or when you said it. 
And you saw the look on their face and their body language just, just, just fall. And you thought that wasn't good leadership. As an employee, you straight up lied to your boss. He put you on the spot and instinctively you went into self-preservation mode and you lied. And right after you lied and he walked away, you got out of the, 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 the tight situation, but the Holy Spirit convicted your heart and you thought, why do I keep doing that? Just be honest. It's going to catch up with me. Maybe you return to that bad habit uh, during a, a stressful day. The habit you, you, you said you would stay clean up for several months. You promised your wife that. Now it makes you feel awful. You were doing so good and then the devil tempts you at a weak time and you go right back to what you said you'd never do again. These are real situations. I'm trying to get you to admit in your spirit, sometimes we lose the battle. And let's be honest, it can cause us to feel worthless as a Christian. Can cause us feeling hopeless or, or frustrated or embarrassed if our failure involves somebody else in our life. Have you been there? Why? Why have you been there? Why do you and I keep messing up? It's not because we wake up and say, I want to be a bad Christian today. It's not because we wake up and say, all right, devil, you get the win today. Have your way in my life. Why do we keep failing in spiritual warfare? To get the answer to that question, we got to figure out why the disciples fail. It's not because they were incapable of healing the little boy. Are you listening to me? They were given apostolic power and even experienced success in casting out demons back in Mark chapter 6. Look at the screen at these verses. This is when Jesus sent them out. And he called unto them the twelve and began to send them forth two by two. And watch, gave them what? Power over unclean spirits. Fast forward to the end of that first missionary trip and look, they cast out many devils. They've done this before. They've been successful before. But they couldn't do it now. Why? Verse 19 tells us. He answereth him, Jesus, and he says this, O faithless generation. Their problem, listen church, was a faith problem. Jesus said they were faithless. Now what does that mean exactly? Is Jesus talking about their state of mind? Is Jesus saying that the disciples ran out of the power of positive thinking? They forgot that book that they read a long time ago. That if they just believed Jesus could, then he would. I don't think it has to do with what they were thinking as much as it has to do with the fact that they were not depending and trusting in Jesus alone. Would you follow me, please? Many I think the disciples probably were presumptuous. Because of their past success with unclean spirits, because of verse 13 of Mark chapter 6. I think they probably got self-confident. And I think their self-confidence caused them to think like Jesus, that they had autonomous power over unclean spirits. Caused them to feel in their, in their heart that like God, they had autonomous power over unclean spirits. What does that mean? It, it means that, that, that they're deity. See, Jesus could walk around anytime, anytime he was introduced to an unclean spirit. He just spoke a word. He didn't have to pray. He had power over him. It was autonomous. The, the disciples were apostles. They had apostolic power. You know what that means? It was borrowed authority. 
And with every new situation that they would encounter, they would have to ask afresh and new for God's power. They didn't walk around as deity, having power over unclean spirits. That was borrowed from heaven. And at some point, they stopped praying to heaven. At some point, they stopped looking to heaven. At some point, they went from God dependence to self dependence. And Jesus said, you're faithless. I believe the reason why we so often fail in spiritual warfare ourselves is because we lack a genuine, humble dependence on God. We don't fail because we're incapable of successfully battling the devil. Book of Ephesians says that we have the resurrection power of Jesus Christ living within us every single day. If you're a child of God, you go to bed with it and you wake up with it. The, the Bible promises in the book of Corinthians that with every temptation, God is faithful to give us a way of escape. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6 that if we stand against the devil and we put on the whole armor of God, that, that we can withstand his wiles, his tricks, his, his deceptions. We don't have to give in. Is anybody in here? I feel like you're not with me because you ain't talking back to me. I'm doing all the talking today. Somebody better wake up, shake your head, give me something. Amen. Or is this just convicting? Either way, I need some amens. So some of you ladies, if your husband's asleep, you just start barking back at me. All right, give me some help. Where was I? Oh, you don't have to give up. I said, you don't have to give up. You don't have to give in. You don't have to mess up. You don't have to fail in spiritual warfare, but we do because often like the disciples, we're faithless. We, we get self-dependent instead of God-dependent. When Jesus knew that the disciples failed because of their lack of dependence, guess what he did? He used the Father's imperfect but humble faith as an object lesson to them. So as to tell them, if you're going to succeed in, in future battles against the devil and you're going to need to, let me show you what you need. And so Jesus went to the father and he said, how long has your boy been acting like this? And the father says his whole life. Since he was just a, a, little, a little kid. And so Jesus told the father, if you'll believe, it's possible that I can heal him of this. And look at what the father said in verse 24. Straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Get this. The father was in tears, desperate for Jesus' help. And he says, I can believe Jesus. Jesus, I have a measure of faith, but I need to tell you, it's not perfect. I don't understand everything there is to know about you or about the Torah or, or about this whole healing business. But I know this. I can't do it. And, and I need you to help me believe that you can because you're all that I've got right now. Get this. The father's faith wasn't perfect, but it was humble. He didn't understand everything there was to understand about Jesus, but he was humble enough to admit that and humble enough to admit that he couldn't fix his problem. And that's when Jesus responded with healing. Not when the father's faith, watch, got to a certain size. But when it became clear that the father's humility was where it needed to be. 
where his dependence was where it needed to be watched. Your success in spiritual warfare is not determined by the quality of your faith. So many preachers today want to make God's working in your life totally dependent upon your faith. And what they mean by your faith is your state of mind. How much you believe in your mind that God can is how much God will. But God's power in your life to overcome the devil's working in your life is not determined by how much you believe in your brain that God can do it. It's determined by how little you rely on yourself to do it. Faith is not just about believing that God can, that's part of it, but it's also about acknowledging that you can't. Faith is about going from self-dependence to God-dependence than staying there. That's how you avoid spiritual failure. I'll say it this way, I want you to get this, it's the heart of the text. You avoid failure in spiritual warfare when you humbly depend on God. That's it. If the devil's trying to wreak havoc in your marriage, depend on God. Devil's trying to wreak havoc in your relationship with your kids, depend on God. Devil's trying to wreak havoc in your daily attitude or your perspective, depend on God. If the devil's trying to get you to go back to that bad habit or sinful addiction, depend on God. You avoid failure in spiritual warfare when you learn how to go from self-dependence to God-dependence. But let's be honest. Depend on God? That sounds like preacher speak. That sounds like Christianese. You say amen, you shake your head, I shake my head, I preach with a lot of passion like we believe it. But what does it mean really? If I just told you, okay, you got marriage problems, you came into counsel in my office. And you said, hey, you laid it all out there. I got problems, she's got problems, fix us. And I say this, depend on God, see you next week. How'd that work for you? You don't want Christianese when you're in the middle of a spiritual warfare. It'd be real easy for me to close the book right now and say, depend on God, and that's my message. That's not fair to you. That wasn't fair to the disciples because that's real vague, real intangible. And so thankfully, we get a glimpse in the last two verses of our text what it looks like to depend on God. See, the disciples asked Jesus if he could debrief their failure. And so when everybody went away and they went behind closed doors, the disciples asked this. Put that verse up there in in, uh, verse 28. And when he was coming to the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could not we cast him out? You know, that reveals their heart right there. That reveals their lack of dependence right there. Why could not we cast him out? Jesus, tell us a new technique. Jesus, what's your magic tricks? Jesus, we've seen you with the really hard cases and you don't stumble at all. Like you always win against the devil. Tell us what to say. Okay, Jesus, next time we get a seizing boy come our way, where do we have to touch his body? Do we have to touch, then blow, then touch again? What's the trick? Jesus tells him in verse 29, this kind can come forth by nothing. No tricks, no gimmicks, no technique but by prayer and fasting. He doesn't give them a a ritualistic routine to go through. He doesn't say you have a faith in a healing service. You need to gather a crowd on the hillside, build you a little platform, get you some light shining just in the right direction, have a couple guys that catch people that fall back and touch them until they fall down. If they don't fall down, just give them a little push so they have to. All that's sarcastic, by the way. 
He didn't say any of that. He told them what you need to remain successful against unclean spirits is to stay in a posture of dependence upon me through two private, not really glittery things. Prayer and fasting. How does prayer develop and maintain dependence on God? Have you ever thought about that? I asked Brother David that and he gave me an awesome explanation. Brother Harris said this, prayer is the vocabulary of reliance. Dr. David Harris said that. (laughs) Prayer is the vocabulary of reliance. It consists of all the things we say to God when we stop taking our life into our own hands. Hey, when it comes to our battles, our spiritual warfare, we need to turn our battles into prayers. Ephesians 6 says, if you want to stand against the wiles of the devil, first thing you got to do is you got to put on the armor of God. It talks about the girdle, the breastplate, the shield, uh, the, the, the shoes, the helmet, all those things. But then he closes the armor with the sharpest weapon that we have against the devil, and that's prayer. Prayer. That means you should pray through your temptations. Have such a prayer life that when the devil tempts you today, when the devil tempts you tomorrow, you don't have to come to an altar to pray. You don't have to get in a prayer closet to pray. You don't have to cause a scene and call, and call down fire from heaven like you're a prophet. You have such a prayer life where you can whisper a prayer of dependence right there to God on the spot. God, if the devil's wreaking havoc in, in your emotions, be honest in prayer with God about that. Tell God, I'm angry. Tell him that. He already knows. You're telling them that because you're saying, God, I'm relying on you to fix this because I can't. God, I'm bitter. God, I'm really insecure right now. God, I've lost my confidence. God, I'm sad. I'm depressed. God, I'm putting on a front when I go to church. I don't want to be around anybody. God, I'm empty. God, I'm in a room full of people on a Sunday morning, but I still feel like I'm all by myself. Be honest with your Savior. He cares. You're telling him, I can't do this. If the devil's wreaking havoc in your marriage, let me give you the advice I give every couple that's about to get married on the very first premarital counseling lesson. It's very simple. Pray with your spouse. It's hard to fight with somebody you're praying with. really is. It gets awkward. Before you go talk to God, you feel like you need to get it right with one of his kids. Who's also your spouse. You need to pray with your spouse to God, both relying on him together to fix your marriage. I I don't think there are a lot of marriages, including mine sometimes, that have habitual prayer between husband and wife. Sometimes it's because the husband's just awkward praying out loud. I understand that. I'm okay with that. You got to learn, though. God's called you to be the leader of your home, sir. And who better to learn from if you can't be that vulnerable from your wife? You, you, you need to just say, hey, babe, I'm going to be real honest with you. This prayer isn't going to be long. And it's not going to be fancy. And I don't really know how to do it very well, so don't laugh at me. But I'm going to pray. And on behalf of us both, I'm just going to ask God to fix this. And sir, you don't have to be fancy or know the scripture. All you got to do is say, God, the best I know how, 
Will you fix what I can't fix? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Anybody can do that. That is a posture of dependence upon God to fix your marriage. The truth is we don't pray because we aren't dependent on God. What we don't pray about reveals what we are taking into our own hands. The reason why we skip our prayer time is because we've got control of our life. If we need something, we'll buy it. If we don't have it, we'll go work for it. If there's a problem, I'll fix it. And you've gotten in this pattern of manipulation and persuasion and action and and powering up on your own. I'm just telling you, at some point, your own strength will not be enough to match the devil's strength. You need prayer. Then he said fasting. Fasting. How could fasting develop and maintain a posture of dependence in the midst of spiritual warfare? Well, here's how. It keeps us dependent on God. Because it's the temporary denial of what we need to survive. At its core, the biblical definition of fasting at its core is giving up food. In giving up food, you're doing two things. You're expressing your dependence on God, number one. Number two, you're longing for more dependence on God. For instance, if you're depending on God right now in your marriage, fasting is a way to say, God, this is how much I need you. If you're not depending on God in your marriage, fasting is a way to say, God, this is how much I want to depend on you. Hey, if you're struggling with a habit or an addiction in your life, can I encourage you to fast? To fast. To not eat for an entire day or to skip a meal. And in the times where you normally eat a meal, pray. You're struggling with breaking a sinful habit. You're struggling with breaking a sinful addiction. Let me encourage you to fast. I read a book one time of a therapist that, that, that wrote about one of her patients who was struggling with an addiction, particularly the addiction of pornography. And he came in week after week and he could not break it no matter what she said. And so she resorted to fasting. And she says, I want you to fast for the next few days. And then after you have fasted, don't eat anything. You can drink water and that's it. Come back and talk to me. So he fasted for three days, came back to the therapist's office, and in her office she had two six-foot tables set up, one on each side of the room. On one side was a table full of delicious food. On the other was a table full of promiscuous and pornographic images. That man walked in there who can never give up pornography, and she said, I'm going to walk out of the office, and you can choose whichever one of the two tables you want. You can feast on pornography or you can feast on food. The choice is yours. I'll be out. Let me know when you made up your mind. It wasn't five seconds before he poked his head out of the door and said, I'll take the food. Because he realized I don't need pornography to survive. But I need food. And fasting, you know what it does? It realigns our perspective. It breaks us of things we think we need. No, no, no. You know what you need? Food and water. And so every time your stomach growls, you're reminded, I need God. Every time you, you, you have a hunger pain, you're reminded, I need God. Every time you get hangry, you're reminded, I need God. Fasting puts you in a, in a posture of dependence on God. But if you're not dependent on God, you know the last thing that's even in your mind? Fasting. That's the last thing you're even, th- it's not even on your radar. 
Because when you live in self-reliance, you don't give up anything you need. When you're your own God and you're your own Savior, you take care of yourself pretty well. Hey, when the disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't heal the boy, you know what they're hoping for? A magic trick. A technique, a routine. But what they got were two private spiritual disciplines, both of which required denying yourself and putting your trust totally on God. The key to avoiding failure in spiritual warfare, hear me, is not reading a new book. Or going to the self-help section of a bookstore. Or listening to, the, to, to a popular podcast. Or going to another seminar. Or frankly, listening to another sermon. The key to avoiding failure in spiritual warfare is to humbly depend on God through regular prayer and fasting. I borrowed your imagination at the beginning of the message. I want to borrow it at the end. Imagine you're going to rappel down a hundred foot rock face. Which one would you rather do? Fight in World War III or rappel down a hundred foot rock face? I say neither. So, so you get the proper equipment on. You step to the edge of the rock face. You're there in your mind's eye. What do you have to do first? Well, they say you have to lean back. They say you have to fully commit to letting the rope hold you up as you repel down the face of the rock. But here's what you and I, being inexperienced, would be tempted to do. You'd be tempted to find the nearest foothold and anchor your foot in it. And then find the next nearest foothold and anchor your foot in it. And instead of leaning back and trusting the rope, you'd slowly climb down by holding on to the rope. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not repelling. That's rock climbing with repelling equipment. When you repel, you lean your full weight on the rope and you trust it to keep you off the ground. When you rock climb, you use your hands and feet to move up the mountain and, rope, and your rope is there as a safety net. This is a great picture of what we so often do in the midst of our spiritual warfare. We want to try and fight it all on our own. And fix it all on our own, yet still have God there as a safety net just in case. Hear me, God isn't meant to be your safety net just in case you fall. He's not a spare tire you have in your life in case you have an unexpected blowout. He's not your insurance plan if there's an emergency. God should be your everything. He should be the rope that you put all your weight into, not your safety net. And the good news is that if, if you lean on God completely, no matter how heavy you are, how much burdens and cares you bring to him, he will hold you up Amen. a lot better than you can hold yourself up. So let's determine this week that dependence on God through prayer and fasting is not going to be our final resort, but our first. No matter where the devil's attacking your life right now, your marriage, your emotions, your health, your finances, your attitude, your friendships, your habits. Wherever and however the devil's trying to wreak havoc in your life, determine that when he does, you're going to get yourself in a posture of dependence on God. You're going, to, you're going to stop trying to fix everything on your own. You're going to stop trying to go to this person and that person and this book and that book. You're going to, you're going to stop saying, I just need to hear one more sermon. You're going to simply whisper a prayer to God to get yourself in a posture of dependence on him. And then you're even going to skip a meal or two to stay there. You avoid failure. Spiritual warfare. When you humbly depend on God. Are you sick of losing?
Sick of felon? Sick of being defeated at the end of the day? Lean on the rope. Quit trying to rock climb when you're made to repel. God will hold you up. Get in the prayer closet and stay there. Skip a meal and pray through lunch. Get in a posture of dependence on God and watch how you will know the victory that He promises every one of His children. If you agree with the Bible, say amen today. Stand to your feet, every head bowed and every